Welcome to That's Illegal, a podcast produced by the Global Justice Center, or GJC. We're a legal human rights nonprofit based in New York City that works to move international law from paper to practice. This week, we're looking at worldwide efforts to get justice for the Rohingya people, who were violently driven from their home in Burma by the military-led government two years ago. The horrific military campaign drew international condemnation, and the United Nations later found the acts amounted to war crimes and even genocide. But to this day, the Burmese government has evaded any meaningful accountability. To break down the current state of play and the international response to this atrocity, we have Dr. Simon Adams, Executive Director of the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. Simon is an expert in mass atrocity crimes who has long worked on and spoken about the persecution of the Rohingya. We also have on the president of the Global Justice Center, Akila Radhakrishnan. Simon, Akila, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. For our uninitiated audience, let's start with the basics. Simon, who are the Rohingya and what happened to them in August 2017? In terms of answering that question, I think there's a, a, a bigger question about the kind of country that Myanmar or Burma is. It's a very diverse, ethnically diverse, religiously diverse country. And the Rohingya are a minority group um, in the north of the country in Rakhine State, predominantly Muslim. And uh, what happened to them in August of, of 2017 was that the government of Myanmar does not recognize them as, as one of the national groups of the country. They've been over many years and, in fact, over decades systematically stripped of their rights, denied citizenship in some cases put into internment camps, um, kept separate and segregated from the rest of the population, and stripped of what most people would consider to be even basic civil rights. And then in August 2017, following an attack by a non-state armed group uh, called the uh, Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, there was a massive military operation, not just against that non-state armed group, but in fact against the entire Rohingya population, resulting in what we would uh, think, and I'm sure my colleague sitting next to me here on the left would agree, was a genocide that was perpetrated against the Rohingya. Thank you for that background, Simon. Akila, could you possibly shed some light on the sexual and gender-based crimes of Burma's military forces and why they're important to emphasize? Sure, thanks. Um, and I think this picks up on where Simon started, which is that Burma is an ethnically diverse region and that the Tatmadaw has been engaged in conflict with ethnic groups for decades. Um, and sexual violence has formed a part of the pattern of how they perpetuate crimes against ethnic populations since the 1960s, since really they've been engaged in this conflict. And so there's a really um, you know, strong threat to be drawn to how the military itself conceptualizes the consequences of sexual violence and how they use it towards strategic means, whether it's in states like Kachin or Shan State, where there's still active conflict, or whether against the Rohingya, and specifically in the context of the Rohingya um, and you know, in the, the way they perpetrated the genocide, the manner that they utilize sexual violence, the manner that they even committed other crimes are all deeply gendered um, and has been a lot of the subject of the Global Justice Center's work on this issue. Okay, Simon, so it's two years later. Where are the Rohingya now and why can't they return to their home in Burma? Yeah, well, again, to answer that question, I think uh, the long period of persecution in, in Myanmar has led to uh, the dispersal of many Rohingya people around the world. So, you know, from Australia to 
London to the United States of America. There are Rohingya everywhere who have fled persecution in in uh, Myanmar. But more specifically, I think one of the greatest tragedies that's happened since August of 2017 is that the vast majority of the world's global Rohingya population actually live in Bangladesh now. They live in refugee camps on the border uh, with Myanmar. And we're upwards of 900,000 people who have been systematically displaced uh, over the last couple of years. So that's unfortunately the tragedy of the current situation of the Rohingya. And initially, what was the overall international response like? Uh, did it give you any sense that swift action would be taken? No, I think, you know, in so many cases, you know, that that I work on, that the, the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect works on, you know, we're constantly told by UN member states that we need more early warning, we need more early warning. If only we had some early warning, you know, we could deal with this situation. Uh, you could not have got more early warning in the case of the Rohingya and Myanmar. I mean, we're talking about decades of persecution. We're talking about years and years of human rights organizations like my own and 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 others saying, you know, this is the problem. This is what's happening. This is the risks that we see. These are the threats that are emerging. The the lights are all flashing red on the on the the warning panels, and yet, you know, almost uh, absolutely nothing was done to either prevent the genocide from happening, to stop it while it was happening, and then now, unfortunately, very little to be done to help people uh, to account in the aftermath. And I think on this, Burma has been a particular case of a persistent failure of the international community. Um, you know, what you saw, what you can see now over the past 10 years, let's say, is you saw what the context of council action looked like or security council action looked like, which was nothing in the wake of the, you know, the junta in the in the aughts, right? You saw a little bit of action when it came to the Saffron Revolution and the and kind of putting down of the Buddhist monks. Um, which were, you know, nonviolent protests, but it's been a slow burn there for a very long time and there's been almost no action. And then what you saw that was remarkable was instead of paying heed to a lot of organizations, including both of ours, that in the wake of the transition were saying things aren't actually better, things cannot actually get better, there's still systematic persecution, there's conflict, the military remains in power through the constitution and the international community between 2010 and 2014 wanted no part of understanding of Burma as anything other than a success story. That's what they wanted to see Burma as. They wanted to see it as a peaceful transition of power. They wanted to invest in Aung San Suu Kyi, who was a hero from her time being as a political prisoner. But they as a result of that, they fully ignored any of the continuing warnings that were occurring in parallel as as the community invested financially, economically, and kind of in, in I would say, in development efforts within the country. And so I think that's an important backdrop to the inaction that we see now is that there were years and years where these kinds of acts against the Rohingya, there was a wave of violence against the Rohingya in 2012, for example, that nobody really, the international community did not want to pay attention to because the narrative that they wanted at the time was that of Burma as a success story. And so I think that that's really important context for where we've seen it now. And even since the what's happened in the wake of the clearance operations in, in October 2016 and 17, the Security Council has passed one presidential statement, one. They've taken no meaningful action whatsoever to respond to whether they're early warning indicators or clear documentation of atrocities that have happened. 
You know, and speaking of UN in action, uh, Simon, I thought you had an interesting TV interview last year where you said that Facebook, in shutting down the accounts of a few Burmese generals, had done more than the United Nations Security Council to hold the perpetrators of these atrocities accountable. Uh, so what obligations do um, international legal bodies like the UN have to act here? And can you sum up the accountability efforts or lack thereof the UN has undertaken thus far? Yeah, I mean, I think I was probably pretty angry at the UN Security Council at the time, and I was that was not so much a matter of praising Facebook as it was of criticizing them. And, you know, we should be really clear that the people that carried out the genocide used and manipulated social media in a, in a pretty overt way. Facebook was just one. There are, there are other platforms that they used as well. But it was a positive thing afterwards that, you know, some of these, these – um, platforms, including Facebook, actually got some of the generals off social media, got some of the hate speech, got some of the incitement off social media. And I guess the contrast I was I was trying to draw was an obvious one that, you know, as, as Akilah just mentioned, you know, we see now we're coming up on, on two-year anniversary of the beginning of the genocide against the Rohingya, and the only thing that the UN Security Council has done is to adopt a single presidential statement. Um, which was a good presidential statement, but it certainly is not uh, what we should have seen. There's been no attempt by the international community in a coordinated way to actually hold the generals accountable for what they've done. In terms of accountability, look, I think on a bilateral level, I think some states have imposed sanctions on some of the generals um, and some of the other senior military officers who are responsible for atrocities. That's a positive thing. And I think the states that have done so, whether it be uh, the United States, uh, Canada, the EU, Australia, and others uh, should be congratulated for that. But, you know, we need to be absolutely clear that it it just has not been enough. It's been very late, and it has not uh, done anything so far to, to save a, a single life. I think the, the bigger question now is what is the international system going to do to actually come to terms uh, with with what happened in in 2017, and I, for one, strongly believe, and uh, I, I know Akila agrees with this, that a central part of this is going to be justice. That's not just because we think that the people responsible should be punished, should be in handcuffs and held accountable in a in a court of law, but because I think that's also the antidote for recurrence of these atrocities in the in the future. You've expressed your frustration with the UN Security Council, you know, but there has been United Nations activity on this front. Um, the UN fact-finding mission has been active for a couple of years now. They've released a lot of reports on the human rights abuses by the government and other uh, facts about uh, the persecution of the Rohingya. And they've even found that the acts that you we've mentioned earlier about the clearance operations amounted to genocide. Uh, they determined that. So I'm wondering how significant you think that is and if you could possibly shed more light on the fact finding mission? Well, I think it's very significant, but let's be clear, that's not the Security Council that did that. They actually outsourced that job. You know, it was actually their failure to do their job, which caused people in Geneva to look for other avenues to try and you know, pursue international justice or even just to pursue, in this, in this case, you know, accountability in the sense of just determining who was responsible, collecting evidence and, and uh, making sure that that's available. So I think the work of the fact-finding mission has been fantastic, but it was kind of like a substitute for the inaction and failure of, of the Security Council. And in terms of their determination, I, I think they've done extremely good work. I think the fact that they found that the crimes that occurred 
in between August and, and December of 2017 in Rakhine State against the Rohingya-constituted genocide are, are correct. And I think the challenge now is for us to make sure that we take the next steps and that we don't just simply stand around wringing our hands and gnashing our teeth and, and crying tears over what happened, but that we actually see perpetrators held accountable in a court of justice. And I think just to add on to that, from a legal side, a determ a, a, you don't even need a determination of genocide. If at the moment that states know of a serious risk of genocide, they actually have an obligation to do something about it. Um, and in this context, what we've seen is that you have thorough documentation of what is you know, clearly genocidal intent, genocidal acts, and yet in the years since the fact-finding mission produced their report, other than some of the measures that Simon outlined around sanctions, you've still seen the failure, both of individual states and the international community to take any meaningful action to actually both deploy their own obligations under the Genocide Convention and hold Burma to account for its obligations under the Genocide Convention. So Simon said he wanted to see the perpetrators of these atrocities held accountable. Akila, where can justice be found in the international system? You know, can you explain what courts uh, are out there, what their jurisdiction is, and what sorts of cases they normally take? Sure. So as a starting point, I think it should be noted that Myanmar's domestic courts and domestic system is not a plausible place for justice. Um, it was That was clearly found by the fact-finding mission, but it's information that has been widely understood and known for um, by advocates for a very long time. And this is because the 2008 constitution puts the military entirely out of the civilian justice system. Um, they have provisions within the constitution that actually provide for their immunity for uh, international crimes, um, including crimes against humanity and genocide. And so I think that this is where we have to look to the international system for what avenues for justice may look like. Um, because without massive structural reform within the country, you're not going to see that justice be served within Burma. Um, and so in that context, there are a couple of different avenues and types of accountability that could be looked at at the international level. So on the one hand is the criminal accountability of individuals who, uh, who have participated condoned the genocide. And so that could be senior officials of the military all the way down to those who perpetrated individual acts. It could also plausibly be those within senior, um, you know, senior ranks in the government who may or may not have had anything to do with the actual perpetration of acts, but who through in their roles actually helped with the planning and the commission of these crimes or failed to act when they knew about these crimes. So there's a broad range of accountability. And right now for that, there's two venues that are seemingly plausible. On one hand, the International Criminal Court has opened up a limited prosecution because Burma is not a party to the International Criminal Court. They've opened up a li limited investigation into certain crimes that carried over into Bangladesh. And so depending on where those investigations go, it is plausible that a few individuals could be indicted and then as always with the ICC, it's a matter before that before a trial can start that someone actually get, has to get their hands on these people. You need to actually have them in your custody. And at this point, that doesn't seem like a very likely opportunity because the Burmese government is not going to cooperate with the International Criminal Court. They've made that clear. So they're not going to hand anyone over. Um, there's also limited opportunities in third party states around the theory of universal jurisdiction. But at the moment, 
really in the Asia Pacific region, universal jurisdiction is not widely utilized and the systems aren't there to use it. And a lot of the European system is very much absorbed by cases related to Syria and Iraq where there's a more direct connection. Um, and then on the other side, there's the piece around state accountability. And so that, you know, instruments like the Genocide Convention lay out not only are individuals criminally responsible, but that a state owes obligations uh, when it comes to acts like genocide. Um, and in that context, the state itself can be held accountable here in the International Court of Justice. Um, at present, no action has been taken at the International Court of Justice, but it is possible that a state, any state that belongs to the belongs to the convention, could actually take Burma to the court to hold them to account for a variety of the obligations that they've breached under the convention, including commission, but also their failures to prevent and punish. Kila, you said that any state that is a party to the Convention Against Genocide could take Burma to court. Uh, could you or Simon briefly explain the Convention Against Genocide, uh, its history, and what obligations states have under it? Sure. So maybe I'll leave some of the, the legal stuff to Akila. But for me, the Genocide Convention is, is kind of one of the single most important outcomes of the aftermath of the Second World War and the Holocaust and is hugely influenced by it. And it's largely the product of, of one man, Raphael Lemkin. And the reason why I like to mention him is not just because I think he's a very important legal scholar who gave us this document, but because it's it kind of speaks to personal activism as well and the difference that an individual can make. You know, he was a, a guy who, a lawyer, a refugee who, who lived and died here in New York but made it his kind of life's work to honor his relatives who had died in the Holocaust to, first of all, create the, the term genocide to describe a crime that until then had no name, and then to outlaw it under international law. So uh, I think, you know, we should all try and have a, be a little bit like uh, Raphael Lemkin in what we do. And what I would like to highlight about the Genocide Convention is really that it's unique in that it imposes obligations not only on those who are directly responsible for genocide. So a state where genocide happens, they have obligations to criminalize genocide. They have obligations to take actions to actually punish people. Um, it actually says that genocide is of such a concern to the international community that everybody has the obligation to do everything in their power to prevent it. Um, and I think that's really important because that's the rallying cry of, of what never again is supposed to be like when deployed correctly, is that when you see signs of genocide, you should do whatever it is within your power. If you're a state on the Security Council, that means you have certain powers. If you're a bordering state, if you're engaged in one-on-one, -on -one, you need to do whatever you can to stop the genocide from happening. Because what genocide protects is something that cannot be brought back. Right. And that's why the duty is not only to address it in the aftermath, but to prevent it from happening in the first place. Can I just like add one more thing to that, which is, again, I think the longevity of it as well. Mm -hmm. Like, it, you know, we still use that word. It's probably one of the most powerful words in the English language and in any language in the world. And I think the convention still stands as well. And I mean, we've been doing this other work, you know, my organization, um, with the Getty Foundation and others around uh, cultural heritage protection, looking at, for example, what ISIS has done in northern Iraq. And again, you go back to the debates around the Genocide Convention and how it evolved. Lemkin wrote about all this stuff. Mm -hmm. He talked about all of this stuff. And it was actually cut out of yeah. the Genocide Convention because of politics, yeah. because there are a number of states, particularly white settler states, including the one that 
gave me this accent, Australia, <laughs> that were very, very nervous about the implications of, of cultural genocide to Indigenous peoples in the countries where they had come and they had displaced people. But still, you know, 70 years later, we go back, we look at those debates, we look at those writings, we look at the way that he tried to understand the crime, and we, we can still get a lot out of it. Sorry, that's a digression from the Rohingya, but... No, it's interesting. As you say, it's such a powerful word. I think it's good to explain its its origins and its continued relevance today, especially if the international system attempts justice in Burma using the Genocide Convention. And I think that this highlights the point that there's the legal construction of genocide. So the convention is an important tool, but it was a political decision ultimately. So what's contained in the convention represents a series of compromises that were made to make it palatable for states to sign on. And I think what Simon's talking about, about what Lemkin's work was around cultural genocide that was excluded, was some of the broader constructs of what the term tries to encompass and what it means to destroy you know, a targeted group in a population. And so even if it's not within the strictly legal definition of it, I still think that there's important components of it that we need to look at as a part of, you know, a sociological and anthropological understanding of what genocide is and how it impacts communities and societies. So I think that brings us to what's happening today. You've said that states can bring Burma to the International Court of Justice, you know, for breaching the Convention Against Genocide. But have any states done that? You know, what is the current state of uh, play when it comes to state accountability at the International Court of Justice? Oh, and what would an eventual just outcome look like at the court? I mean, what I would say about that is, is that, you know, I think there's been a growing movement since um, August of 2017 of people asking questions about what an accountability process might look like. Akhil has already explained, you know, why the domestic option is not there. There is a possibility of something potentially happening at the International Criminal Court, but that's about individuals. But there is this whole argument of state responsibility under the Genocide Convention and uh, my own organization and, of course, the Global Justice Center have actually been working together to try and raise this issue and say that, you know, any state, and we would like to see all states, I think, mm -hmm. who are signatories to the Genocide Convention should take Myanmar to the International Court of Justice for the genocide that they perpetrated against the Rohingya population. You know, I think uh, we're seeing now a possibility where the the OIC has made a decision and the Gambia may take a case forward. And certainly we think that this would be the beginning of a step towards holding Myanmar accountable in front of the eyes of the world. And certainly we hope many other states will join that case. And I think this action can really help maybe break some of the logjam that we've seen. So one of the major consequences of the failure of the international community to act is that Burma has done nothing to change their behavior. Right. What you have a over, you know, you have a million people displaced in Bangladesh. They do not have the safe ability to go back home. And in fact, they're taking actions like raising the raising the actual villages that the Rohingya lived in, which happened as part of clearance operations, rebuilding over them, resettling people into those populations. And what they're doing is they're and, and you know, this is a part of a pattern of repressive behavior against other ethnic groups as well. But nothing has been done to change the behavior of the state. And holding the state responsible, taking actions to not just hold some gen individual generals accountable, but rather to say you as a state need to do something and we take that seriously and we're going to take you to court about it is really an opportunity to try to force the hands of 
Burma's government to change their behavior, which is much needed at this point if the Rohingya are ever to have not only justice, but to be able to safely return home and, and live the existence that the way that their community needs to be able to live. So I wonder if we can get in the weeds for just a second here. Uh, Akilo, you said the International Court of Justice could potentially force Burma to change its behavior. I'm wondering if either of you can get into the specifics of what that would look like and you know what measures they would take. I feel like one of those people in a crime show who says, you know, I'm going to refer that question to my lawyer. Um, That's correct. But, <laughs> but I, I am going to refer that, that, that question to Akilo, except to say this, that, you know, as the politics guy, I will say that the symbolism involved in here is very, very powerful and very important as well. And we want a judgment because there are actually provisional measures that can be put in place. There are legal penalties that, that can be imposed. But I think beyond that as well, we want a situation where any representative of this murderous government in Myanmar, which has carried out this genocide, has to walk around any international stage in the world knowing that they have been held accountable at one of the highest courts in the world of the crime of genocide. And that's a stain that they cannot just simply wash away or wish away and that they actually have to do something about. But on the legal stuff, I'm sure Akila has something she wants to say about that. So on the, on the legal side, the ICJ is a weird institution. It's not an institution or a court like we think of it. And it's not one that's actually looking at vindicating, for example, victims' rights. That's not what the ICJ does. The ICJ is a part of the, the rules-based international order. It's a, it's a mechanism that was set up as a part of the UN as a way of settling disputes within states in a peaceful manner. And so that's really what justice at the ICJ looks like. It's about saying that we believe a state believes that you as another state have not done what you are supposed to do under international law. And we want to, you know, we want a court to actually adjudge what it is that you have violated and what you need to do to redress that situation. And so this is where it's a little bit of a weird mechanism. It's not one where there is, you know, individual witness testimony in the way that we think of it in a criminal trial. There's not formal participation for victims because ultimately, and this is going to sound callous, the court doesn't care about the rights of individual Rohingya. That's not what they're trying to adjudicate. They're actually looking at the right of a state against another state to have the genocide convention be complied with. Um, and so it's also why the ICJ is just one mechanism that's part and parcel of a larger picture of accountability. Just because a, a case at the ICJ, if one moves forward, doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to pursue individual criminal accountability, that states shouldn't impose state-to-state -state sanctions and other types of behavior to actually encourage the, the country to change. So it's it's a really important part, and I think, as Simon said, a really important symbolic part. Um, but it's not going to be the piece that it's not a silver bullet to change the situation or the scenario. So before we end today, I'd like to turn things back to the Rohingya. Simon, why is international accountability so important for the Rohingya community and their future prosperity? And separately, do you think just results at bodies like the International Court of Justice help prevent further atrocities like this? I think they do. And I think, again, I think there's the question of the Rohingya. A million people sitting in refugee camps in Bangladesh. They deserve justice. They have a right to justice. And certainly a case at the International Court of Justice or the International Criminal Court would make a difference to these people. It would... It would do something to, I think, uh, save some of the, the, the pain that people have uh, endured. 
But I also think there's a broader question of the impact that this could potentially have in Myanmar as well. There's no doubt in my mind that the generals who carried out the atrocities in Rakhine State want to take those lessons and apply them to other parts of the country. We've already seen that with, with in Kachin. We've already seen that in other parts of the country. They feel that if they can get away with mass murder in one part of the country, then they must be able to get away with it in another part. And the other side of that equation is that people in Myanmar who believe in human rights, who believe in justice, are also looking at this as well, and it could become an emboldening thing for them. I think... You know, there's a huge onus of responsibility in the international community as well. And I'd go back to something that Akila actually said earlier. There has been this whole kind of argument of, well, let's be quiet about human rights in, in Myanmar because, you know, democracy is more important. Like somehow you could build democracy in Myanmar on the bones of the Rohingya. And I think that's something we should not allow morally, politically. And I think if we have some kind of a legal response, hopefully we can start to tilt the balance away from, you know, these horrible violations of human rights and towards justice in Myanmar. We've also focused a lot in talking about states, the responsibility of the international community. And I think that um, there is a large role to be to be played in thinking through what the complicity of various states are, especially those of transferred arms, for example, to the Tatmadaw. But we also talked a little about Facebook and private corporations. And, and just this morning, the FFM released a massive new report that actually looks at financial interests and the role that financial interests of corporations in Asia, in Europe, have actually played in supporting the commission of these crimes. And this is because and this goes back a little bit to the point of why I think people wanted to brand Burma as a success when it comes to democracy. It also opened up a financial market that was not open to the majority of countries. It's a mineral rich country. There are a lot of mining and other types of income to be generated. And before the opening up in 2010, those were not financial markets that were available to the vast majority of countries. There were wide sanctions in place. And you can actually see this as a part of the military's strategy in why it is that they opened up the country and allowed for this transfer of power, which wasn't a transfer of power because they wrote the constitution that kept them in power. They also own the majority of the corporations that have military or their cronies own the majority of the corporations that have profited from the foreign investment um, and the, the mining interests that have happened. And so I think that there's also a really serious need to think about the ethical practice by corporations in when they invest in these countries and how corporations perhaps should also be held accountable for the rights violations that they are complicit in and have helped perpetrate. All right. Thank you, Simon. And thank you, Akila, for joining us today. I, I know this is an issue that both of our organizations are working on and tracking closely. So we may have you back on for a future episode. Oh, thank, thank you. you. And thank you for having me.